0: And welcome to The Renegade Economists with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. The show where we try and checkmate conservative forces by beating them at their own game. Yes, that's calling them out on the free lunch they can devour so easily because the economic function removed the value of the earth and natural monopolies from way back in the 1880s. All right, well, uh, we're going to slide on into a bit of a different perspective on our common theme here of land reform and the right for us all to have a, a share in the rising value of the earth all right renegade economist. this week we're talking to Zbigniew dumienski who's a georgist from auckland new zealand and he has a specialty of been wanting to get on the show. He's dropped into our new office in Harcourt Street, North Melbourne. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about microstates and uh, exactly how they play out with the sort of economic challenges so many nation states are facing. So Zig, welcome to the show. Uh, tell us a bit about micronations and why they're important to you. First of all, thank you very much for having me here. It's
1: really nice to visit you guys here. And first thing is that I study small political entities in general and microstates more specifically. And there's a small difference, uh, there's actually a big difference between different types of small political entities. We have lots of autonomous regions, sort of um, sub-national special jurisdictions. Uh, such as w- the Channel Islands, for instance, in Europe. We also have small sovereign states, very, very small sovereign states, that delegate some of the attributes of the sovereignty to other countries, such as the Cook Islands, Neue, uh Liechtenstein, San Marino. These are the countries that I call microstates and the ones I focus on. We also have small states that have different challenges to big states, but politically, qualitatively speaking, they're not very different to any other type of sovereign entities. So I look specifically at microstates, the small sovereign states that nevertheless delegate some of their sovereignty to other larger states.
0: Okay, so that's a specialty within a specialty, but uh, just in general though with these microstates, they must have to be more flexible. What what are some of the other things I mean you mentioned before that Liechtenstein only has 30,000 People in their population. I mean, that's uh, phenomenal. So, such a small nation state, uh, uh, what sort of characteristics uh, are defined in this situation?
1: Yes, they are obviously, you know, as the name suggests, they're all very small, and Liechtenstein is actually not even the smallest of the microstates I look at. It has um, around 30 to 40,000 people and only 160 square kilometers when it comes to the size of its territory. With, it's a very mountainous country as well, so only 50 square kilometers are considered good for well residential or commercial purposes. Uh, the other countries I looked at are, for instance, Niue, which is an island state in the South Pacific with only 1,500 people. And, uh, and there's the Cook Islands with around 15,000 people and a few other of these very tiny states that have sovereignty, international legal personality, but very, very small territory. And uh, even smaller populations. The interesting thing is that the ones in the South Pacific, and that's, you know, that's a from the Georgia's point of view, it's also quite interesting that while they might not have that much land, uh, because the islands are quite tiny, because of the international maritime regulations and legislation, they have quite a lot of natural resources um, under the sea. So they have the 200 kilometers of the exclusive economic zones that, you know, that 200 square miles that surround each of the islands. So The Cook Islands are gigantic when it comes to the resources that they can use exclusively in their exclusive economic zone. Liechtenstein or San Marino, the European microstates, don't have these. Nevertheless, in all these small entities, it is very obvious that land is a huge issue because even when you have 30,000 people, if you have a country with only 160 square kilometers of territory, then it's going to get crowded and you have to be very prudent and you have to be very wise about how you use the land. And the problems associated with different types of land tenure
0: are particularly visible. So many questions there. Which tangent will we take? Uh, I mean, one of the points you're talking about there, the South Pacific, uh, a lot of those microstates have dozens of islands. Um, Vanuatu probably doesn't qualify, but I remember they had 176 islands there. So that raises a whole uh, public administration challenge. And how do these micro nations come up with good policy that can, can easily uh, resolve these issues proactively rather than them mounting and, and the power base having to move to a centralised structure? It is it is a really big challenge, so that's a really good question
1: when it comes to the uh, microstates in the South Pacific, such as the Cook Islands or even the very small, uh, tiny sovereign states such as Kiribati, which has so many islands and huge distances, so this creates tremendous logistical problems. The interesting thing I find about microstates is the degree to which they're actually decentralized, the, despite having such small populations. Not all of them, the ones in the Pacific, could be quite centralized, but, uh, for instance, Liechtenstein... Uh, gives quite a lot of power to each of the village municipalities, a power that would not be even considered as feasible in places like Australia. For instance, in Liechtenstein, every single village has a or village, of this, let's call them political local community, has a constitutional right to unilateral secession and creation of, a, of its own state. Something. Imagine if you know, every town in Australia or even every state in Australia had a unilateral right to secede. At any given moment, uh, this would be it's difficult to imagine politically, but in s- such small places it happens nevertheless. In the Cook Islands, um, the population is concentrated on the main island, Rarotonga, and the other islands have very small population. They have a spirit kind of of independence and autonomy, so they try to safeguard their local culture, their distinctiveness. But politically, they're not very powerful or economically speaking because they don't have that many resources. Let's say 90% of the country's resources are concentrated on the main island. So from that point of view, it's quite centralised. And I don't know that much about Vanuatu, but I would imagine that while local villages, village councils and local little islands have their own autonomy to a
0: degree, I think that system is still quite centralised. These are uh, interesting questions that, Different cultures have evolved over time their political system to adapt to their their cultural and uh, I suppose economic advantages. And uh, when it, when it comes to Liechtenstein, let's delve into that a little bit further. What sort of uh, checks and balances does that uh, that sovereign uh, risk of a local municipality saying "forget it, we're going to set up our own state here"? I mean that must changed the dynamics, very interestingly, for the, the federalized powers. And as you suggest, uh, uh, with the, the rate of federalization here in Australia, that's something that perhaps we should uh, think about more clearly. I think
1: Liechtenstein is a very unique political entity because it's, an, it's a monarchy um, and not just a symbolic type of monarchy, but the monarch, the sovereign of Liechtenstein, the prince of Liechtenstein has quite a lot of power. But surprisingly, he was the one who was pushing for the type of constitution that would allow uh, villages the unilateral right of secession. He actually, his original idea was to allow every individual a right to secede from the country. But this was considered a bit too utopian uh, when they had the last referendum on constitution, because that's a relatively new principle, even about the villages. But he's ideologically, we could call him perhaps a type of, libertarian but also a monarchist a traditionalist a person that believes that the social contract should be an active thing not just an assumption but something that uh, you know that a country um, political community has to rely on active consent of the governed so if they do not want to be part of the country then they should be allowed to leave so it would be very unfortunate just like a divorce like if you married then you know it's good to stay together but times perhaps a divorce could be a good op- uh, separation could be a good option and then you have to s- create the rules for a civil divorce and that's what the arguments about this were but the bottom line was I suppose that the belief was that if every municipality has a right to secession then this creates quite a lot of pressure on the government on the central government to behave in a very reasonable way let's put it this way uh, to seek consensus not to antagonize any part of the country because you always have the threat that if you go too far if people have strong grievances, they will just uh, initiate a procedure to leave the
0: current political structure. We're talking to Zbigniew Jumieński today about microstates and the interesting dynamics that plays on both the political and economic cultural processes. As Big is a academic out of Auckland University and has lived in a couple of these micro nations. So, uh, tell us about your time on the Cook Islands and some of the things you learnt there that you would never have thought um, played out in the the decision making process. I really enjoyed my
1: time over there. It was a great experience, uh, not only because it's a beautiful place, but also because it's absolutely fascinating how how it functions. Uh, politically speaking, be, despite its very small size. Uh, one thing that I find extremely surprising uh, from the Georgia's point of view is the land tenure system that uh, the Cook Islands has. It's, you know, land, I don't know if, how much you know about the Pacific Islands and the land tenure systems over there, but let's put this way, that in the Cook Islands, land cannot be sold or bought or even gifted. Uh, you're born, and if you're a Cook Islander from a particular island, you and your family, you own the land that presumably belong to your ancestors, and you have an equal share in it. So even if you leave the country, you still own the land. You never stop owning it. You can never gift it. You can never, you can never abandon the land claim that you have. And this creates tremendous problems. It's not the traditional way. This was established after colonization of the Cook Islands. But this means that they have a tremendous problem with absentee landowners. It's the same in Niue. It's another example of a country of that sort. If you go to Niue or even the Cook Islands, but Niue especially, you see a lot of empty houses, vacant lots everywhere because Niue or the Cook Islands, they have much larger populations of the people, the landowners that would live in Auckland or even in Australia than back on the islands. And they never lose their land rights so that you can lease the land for, I don't know, 50, 60 years, 60 years is the standard, I suppose. But you can never buy it, you can never lose it. So many families still hold the rights, and this prevents mm, progress development in many, many different ways.
0: Yeah, well, this is a very interesting topic because throughout the Pacific, uh, through many indigenous communities in the world, there is this customary title to land, And a tension underwriting that is that uh, the World Bank, for example, uh, really pushes on these developing nations to privatise their land title. And there's a lot of conflict over whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. But uh, uh, either way you look at it, uh, lazy land use is poor for community development, and I suppose that's what you've seen there. But uh, how were the conversations that flowed once you settled in and saw how land was being used or abused? So one of the, one of the
1: key observations that I had in the Cook Islands and in Niue when I lived there was the effects uh, of the land tenure system that they have. So when the, when the British came to the islands, um, people had their customary, let's say, um, rules governing land use. And the common belief we can say from today's perspective was that land cannot belong to the people, but people belong to the land. So you can use the land. Well, you can not own the land, but you use the land as as long as the community thinks that you should be using it. When you stop using it, it's not yours. The community just allocates the usage to someone else. At the same time, when the Westerners came today to the Pacific, they decided that, well, some of them wanted to put the land into, change the system into something more Western because they believe that if the land is privately owned, this can help development. But because of the experience with the Maori land in New Zealand, the British were reluctant to apply the rules of unconditional private land ownership in the Cook Islands and Niue. And they created a hybrid system where local population holds the rights or local families own the land forever and the offsprings inherit equal shares in the land forever and ever, can never gift it, can never sell it to anyone, can only lease it which seemed like a good idea of preserving the local indigenous ownership of the land uh, so that the local indigenous people do not become dispossessed in a way that the Maori in New Zealand uh, did or the Hawaiian indigenous populations, you know, the way they became dispossessed the problem was that because each family has to own a particular plot of land that was decided that their o- ancestors owned. That meant that the land market is extremely stagnant, let's put it this way. Land use is very stagnant as well. Another factor that contributes to this stagnation is the fact that most of the Cook Islanders and most of the niueans live overseas, in Auckland, in all over New Zealand and in Australia as well, and they still hold the rights to, using to, to land. So when you travel around niue you see a lot of vacant houses, That no one does anything about and when you actually try to do anything about the land on the island some of the other family members then suddenly you will see a plane coming from sydney or from auckland with the the other family members really angry that something happens on their land against their consent when we lived in rarotonga uh, we've often heard about uh, land disputes between different families so often a family would wait If there's a land dispute, they would wait for another family to complete construction of a house, and then they would burn it at night. So that was part of the land dispute. So you see that this system, they're generated in something that splits families apart, that splits the community apart, and benefits while the Cook Islanders are landowners and own land in their own country. Nevertheless, the system doesn't really guarantee that much justice or progress. So that's the real paradox and problem of the system. It's extremely difficult to change it because the moment you try talking um, about any type of reform, this is the most heated political topic you can possibly imagine. When I was in Rarotonga and in Niue, I organized seminars and meetings to talk about taxing land, perhaps reforming the system so that the government would collect taxes on the land values and redistribute these taxes, these revenues, equally to all community members and thereby returning to the old principle that we all should have equal rights to land but the very mention of land issues was so controversial people coming there and being extremely angry uh, maybe not at me personally but at any mention of an idea that the system should be reformed because on the one hand some people might genuinely believe that any type of reform would be going to that World Bank type direction that you know the land will become private property things will uh, the land ownership will become concentrated in uh, very few hands and this would create tremendous problems in inequalities. And on the other hand, we have these vested interests because not all land has equal values today. In the past, you know, the Cook Islands and Newer lived of agriculture, very simple agriculture. So the land values, whether the land was located by the sea or not, didn't matter as much as whether the soils were fertile. Whereas today, the owners of the plots of land by the sea are millionaires. Well, not even millionaires, but the families are very comfortable and secure because you can lease out these lands to resorts to hotels and you can live off just the the rent you get from the from the ho- hotel op- operators very comfortable lives but if you happen to be from a family owning land not only on the main perhaps even on some outer island but even if it's the main island but somewhere more inland then uh, you're in a very poor situation because few people want to rent the land from you and if you want to work At one of the hotels, you have to compete against uh, foreign labor that are a bit cheaper, so they bring in workers from uh, Fiji, from the Philippines, from Tonga. So you uh, as a landless person in Rarotonga, a Cook Islander who doesn't own any land in Rarotonga, many such people just emigrate to Auckland or to Australia because they're all Kiwi citizens. So they can come to Auckland or come to uh, Australia and just work here or uh, do some other things
0: rather than stay in their own country. A strategic system of disempowerment, isn't it? It's uh, just so frustrating. And uh, one of the problems we have is that uh, so many of these, these micro-states are suffering economically. And uh, this is leading to some of the pressures we see around the world where there's a push for greater privatizations, there's you know, sovereign indebtedness, all of these sort of pressures that we see uh, so famously in Nauru where they've gone from being a mining giant living on their phosphate rents and uh, resource scarcity kicked in and now they've run out of their phosphate-based income and uh, society is falling apart. Uh, The young are leaving. Uh, The nation state has a, a very poor understanding of how to finance themselves and so is this part of your work uh, analysing how the health of these these micro states that ignore the value of their land and resources play out I'm
1: really interested in the issue of economic development in micro states Um, absolutely, I just think that the ones I focus on have been fortunate not to have any valuable natural resources other than let's say the cook islands today has you know good good weather and is popular among tourists but let's say Liechtenstein has survived as a sovereign entity precisely because it's always been seen as extremely insignificant and poor so and and it had you know the popular and quite powerful ruling family but nevertheless no one thought it was worthwhile to capture it and conquer it so they survived in their little corner of the alps for 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 several centuries uh, because they were of no strategic importance and I think that's really that tells us a lot about economic development because you see countries like Liechtenstein with no natural resources that today Liechtenstein is among the richest countries on earth uh, per capita Uh, the standard of living is absolutely amazing and they have no natural resources and some people say that's precisely why uh, this country is so rich because if you don't have any any easy way of making money by extracting just like Nauru uh, phosphates or any other minerals very quickly, you have to actually start caring about
0: your economy and building it in a sustainable way because you have no other option. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economists, with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and we're with Spignew demensky an academic from Auckland University. And goodness me, I want to keep this conversation going for another 20 minutes. Uh, it's been fantastic. But uh, let, let's push on. I always say we're going to do a 20-minute interview and it always ends up pushing that. But uh, here's another misnomer you've identified and you've been hinting at in a way the resource curse and uh, We had our friend Gordon Abiyama on a couple of months ago talking about what's happening in the Niger Delta with the oil rents there and the incredible corruption and destruction that's flowed from that. And it's another one of these disarming fallacy that's been pushed through that uh, if you're in a strategic location or you do have these natural resources, you are going to suffer the consequences. Now, how does the sort of reform we like to talk about deal with these deeper issues of uh, resource sovereignty, and from that, uh, a sense of uh, national dignity. It's obviously in an ideal world, uh, we would be sharing the value of the
1: natural resources equally among all the members of our political communities. But the world isn't perfect, so we often see that the temptation that comes from owning, from you know, when you, and when you have a country that has tremendously valuable natural resources, it creates very specific incentives for the ruling elite because they don't really have to rely that much on um, not even the active support but on trying to bring some freedom entrepreneurial spirit to their communities but they can sort of bribe the public with their rent coming from the resources in their country so we've seen this in Africa we've seen this in many other places we we see the effects of uh, economic development based purely on natural resources even in Australia and uh, well, some other places around the, around the Pacific. I think that one thing, if I may go back to the microstates, one thing that is very striking about Liechtenstein is that because they had no resources and because they're so tiny, uh, it was obvious from the very beginning that the country has to be quite economically open and give quite a lot of freedom to its citizens when it comes to trade, to opportunities, because they simply couldn't afford any protectionist policies for that matter. And every company in Liechtenstein from the very beginning, the government couldn't have special interest groups coming to them and saying like, give us this privilege at the expense of the general population. Give us this protection because they just didn't have the money. They didn't have the means. If you have a country of 30,000 people, tiny landlocked country, you're not gonna be giving out favors to special groups of interest because you just can't afford them. So your economy, your borders are quite open and your companies trade with the whole world. Liechtenstein, many people think it's a tax haven and associates it Exclusively with its fading status as a tax haven, but it's worth remembering that it's the most industrialized country in Europe with over 50% of the workforce working in uh, high tech manufacturing. So, and many of the companies that are worldwide n- kind of famous, such as Hilti, that produces screwdrivers and uh, things of that sort, uh, originate from Liechtenstein, a tiny country in the middle of Europe. Uh, because from the very beginning, when they were established, they had to compete against the entire globe. And that created this entrepreneurial drive in the country.
0: Sounds pretty similar to Singapore, uh, another nation that perhaps has a, a better geographic location, but they had no natural resources, a small population, and they developed their sense of comparative advantage by... Ensuring their economic system was as competitive as possible and that flowed through to the tax system. So it always comes back to this, doesn't it? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite something that uh, we have these micro-nations that are suffering from climate change. Kiribati, you know, the people there, uh, are, you know, I was shocked to see they had to spend $5 million to buy some land off the Anglican Church of Fiji to be able to grow... Uh, their crops, and so uh, the cost to the state of shipping that food across and so forth must be immense, and the pressure on these micro states to evolve to deal with these um, situations uh, keep building as the Australian government wanders through the Pacific, uh, plonking ten thousand page documents on the bureaucrat's uh, desk. There, uh, saying, "Look, all you need is a sales tax." Uh, are they going to be able to survive with uh, the go-to tool of the West, uh, these um, sales taxes? Or uh, do you think that uh, for Kiribati, uh, another nation with hundreds of thousands of square kilometers of of the seabed, uh, I, I talked to some people there a few years ago about the value of their fishing licenses. Same in Vanuatu. They basically gave up a whole pile of fishing rights because the Chinese government offered to build them a new, uh, uh, new jetty, I think. So these sort of considerations play up quite a bit, don't they?
1: Well, the first thing, I'd really like to comment about Singapore. Country that I'm a, a little bit familiar with, uh, lived there for a couple of years and worked at the university in Singapore. Uh, you're absolutely right that Singapore is another example of what happens when you have a country with virtually no natural resources, and what sort of policies emerge out of this situation, and also the smallness that something that the component I'm really interested in how the smallness or the size of a country impacts on its policies, politics, the democratic institutions or non-democratic institutions, just political institutions in general. One thing about Singapore that is worth noting is that much of the revenue of the Singaporean government comes from uh, land values, from the land rent. And it was already observed in the, I suppose it was in the 60s, by Lee Kuan Yew, the Prime Minister of Singapore at that time, that it was pointless for the government of Singapore to build infrastructure such as... uh, um, roads or or railways, and then to see the private landlords benefit from from the values. He said it very explicitly that this was absolutely absurd as an idea that the government would be spending workers' salaries on constructing new train stations and then allowing the private landowners to capture all the gains. Because Singapore is not as democratic as many other countries, it's a different type of political system. He was powerful enough to nationalize the land, something that is not even desirable, but not you know hard to imagine, but not necessarily desirable in any other place. But he nationalized much of the land, and the uh, and the outc- and later started leasing it out to people that want to uh, build uh, anything there or operate commercially on on these lands. The interesting thing is that I remember when I lived in Singapore, I would often see. Uh, kind of new-looking, nice-looking condominiums being torn down. Uh, and I was always wondering why you would destroy a new building, that, you know, 10, 15-year-old condominium, why would it be destroyed? And the answer was always that the land lease is so expensive that if you have a kind of building that is not so great anymore, uh, you don't attract... the uh, The people that would afford to live in that location. So you have to build a new building, you have to construct a new condominium. So all the time, so you don't have spaces in the city center that would be vacant, that's kind of collapsing, dilapidated buildings. No, because the land values are so high, the lease costs are so tremendous. Every entrepreneur has to constantly develop new stuff on that land, so that creates a very powerful, um, let's say, boost for the for the local companies, for the local. businesses,
0: so let's put it this way. So things happen there. The economic activity is tremendous. So there we have uh, Zivdu, an academic from Auckland University, specialist in micro-nations, discussing how land reform can be of use, how it uh, can support efficient use, fair use of land, and some of those family debates a pretty uh Pretty irate and average, if you ask me. So it's it's a delicate world of uh, debate. How do we move forward? Um, we here on the Renegade Economists believe that uh, the property bubble should be channeled away from the banks and back towards the people. It's only really reflecting the naturally rising value of the earth. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Uh, keep Saturday, November the seventh, free. Check out Oasis. O A ses.org.au I'm giving a uh, couple of hours uh, presentation there on uh, uh, current economic policy settings and the commodification of real estate Hey what's up y'all this is Paul Miller aka DJ Spooky straight out of New York City I'm checking in with Australia on 855 on your AM dial and remember Community Radio is subscription sponsored
1: when we talk about resource curse in countries in Africa, I think that much of the analysis about the resource curse in Africa or a, any other place applies to aid in the Pacific. We have a problem that some people call the aid curse in the Pacific, where you have money flowing into the country that breaks the link between taxation, representation, expenditure, and you just get, get money flowing so you can spend on things that without really consulting the local community and without the community being the active agent in determining what the spending priorities should be, because the money comes from overseas. So it's a little bit like with the, uh, it doesn't even come from local taxes or from the local people. So it's a little bit like with the resources or the oil money coming in. And I think that's an element that aid, some aid might be helpful, might be productive, but the same way some of the resource money can be helpful and productive, but very often the political
0: consequences can be less than ideal this will probably end up being a extra segment I'll put on the podcast only so I'm wondering whether we've got to the depths of your studies here on on microstates what are the 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 key learnings you've deciphered and your your key recommendations
1: one of my conclusions coming from studying microstates is that size matters and small size doesn't have to be an obstacle very often it is seen that small countries microstates small political communities are not viable i think they are viable and very often the small size guarantees a better quality of institutions that's one thing another thing is that in such small countries the potential inequalities coming from unequal access to natural opportunities are particularly striking and because these countries are so small and people know each other very well and a single person's voice is quite meaningful in these countries. That's why very often you see that in tiny political entities they find ways of managing the resources in a more um, equal manner, let's put it this way. They don't always succeed, but you see more attempts at trying to solve the puzzle, at trying to make everyone a shareholder in the country, let's put it this way. That so that people can benefit from their country's growth, they can benefit from all the resources. So I'm very optimistic about. Uh, well, even the the land the the land tenure system in the Cook Islands and Newa, however flawed it is, you see that it happened there because of the size. In many many small countries, we see. Uh, policies aimed at sharing the value of natural opportunities more equally. It doesn't have to be microstates necessarily, but for instance, we have the island of Tristan, da Cunha, where all the land is part of the commons and where the local government, and the local community regulates the number of cows, the number of uh, cattle that each family can have, so that there's no problem of overgrazing. We have the examples of Singapore, we have the example of Hong Kong, where the land values are captured by the go- by the government. In Liechtenstein, we have the kind of a little bit more clumsy limits to um, foreign purchases of the land that have been put in place I, in so that the country doesn't have to face too much speculation in land values coming from overseas. And currently, there are also debates on trying to reform the tax system so it falls more heavily on land values and a bit less so on the on on labor and entrepreneurship
0: i found it very interesting in vanuatu just how easy it was to have this conversation about if you like our earth rights and the capacity for um, nature to provide enough for all if only we had uh, an equal share in in this bounty and now how was that capacity with the disjoint of some of this lazy land use you've described in the cook islands was that a schism in indigenous uh, understanding there i mean how did they deal with with that disparity when you you brought it up it's much more difficult in the cook islands because of the
1: power of the absentee landowners so you have lots of family members that reside overseas and they want to keep the right to own the land and not necessarily do anything on the land but because most people in the world not only in small countries but everywhere else in the world recognize that owning land is something very desirable and for the cook islanders it also has a very cultural dimension it's a link to the to the country it's a link to the to the land it's part of the identity so it's extremely difficult to to start any reform that might sound or look as something that threatens the connection between the people and the land, and so I think that that's the major challenge. And I really believe that the solutions suggested by uh, many of the Georgists or people you know associated with the land value tax ideas are in line with the with the with the belief that we should all have equal rights to land. But this is not so clear. Uh, to the people of the Cook Islands or Niue who fear very often that any type of reform would lead into a western style of land tenure system that always leads to uh, concentration of land ownership and essentially inequality.
0: OK, well how about we break that down then? Because uh, there is a fear that when land title uh, can fall under the, the Torrens title system of, of private land ownership, uh, that uh, it will lead to what Herman de Soto, the, the the community development theorist out of Brazil, promoted, and that is that w- the reason why poor people are poor is because they haven't been able to borrow against the value of their land title. Now, how do we cut that off at the pass? Hmm. In in the Cook Islands, people can borrow
1: against the value of the leases on the land, so and that... That caused uh, huge problems before the 2008 crisis because many people were borrowing money and, you know, they uh, they lost the lease rights. So at least, you know, the land stays with the family, but the value of the lease is with the bank. So that's a little bit different. But I think the Soto, uh, part of his argument was also that having security in owning something creates different types of incentives. So it's not only about borrowing money, but also feeling that this part of the of, of earth, you know, I can feel secure here, you can start a business, I can build a house, and this is mine, uh, no um, no truck will come tomorrow and just tell me to go away. And I think that this can be solved through exclusive use of land. That uh, is, it's the Georgist or, or people that look at this do not advocate that people should r- lose their rights to using land. Um, if anything they advocate that we should have equal rights to using the land but uh, i i think that many people fear privatization of land in the we- the western style privatization of land in the pacific not only because of cultural reasons but obviously because of economic reasons so they fear that Well, they themselves might own land, but what happens with their children? Will they have to borrow a lot of money to get the land? What will happen with speculation? Will there be a lot of speculation? Will only a small group of people end up owning all the land as it's happened in most places, especially very touristic places such as Hawaii? And I think that uh, land value tax provides some answers uh, to these uh, and actually can make people feel less insecure about the change because yes, people would be granted exclusive usage rights effectively through land value tax because they would be paying to use the land but the value of the land would be distributed to the community and at the same time uh, all other taxes could be diminished or even we could get rid of many of the other taxes which would benefit many of the people in the community and when we remove the speculation from the equation we don't have to worry that much about excessive debt because the land values start reflecting more the real economic potential rather than any type of speculative premium.
0: Yeah it's a difficult one and this harks back to why we need probably a thousand different renegade economists, radio shows and TV shows and cartoonists and animators and documentary makers because it is a a direct challenge to the way the hierarchical system of society has been established and still within indigenous communities we have that hierarchy and it's the system of balance that you talked about originally in Lichtenstein where there is a some sort of check and balance between local and and, and state and perhaps what we're talking about here crosses both sides of these bridges. And I'd like to think that by sharing these uh, earth rights, this, this bounty of nature, uh, which can be seen in, in this invisible land price that, that leads to debts by, by pulling that debt based capacity out of the system and ensuring that we channel the property bubble away from banks and back to back towards government it would fit within indigenous culture and I was always uh, so impressed and I've told this story a number of times about uh, meeting the people of the Shepherd Islands Alliance Party in Vanuatu in 2008 or nine. and uh, within minutes you know of me talking they got it talking to taxi drivers they'd get it within seconds sort of thing Uh, whereas you try and talk to someone here in the West and uh, they just don't have that connection to the earth and everything's been concreted over. And uh, this guy, his name was also Carl in Vanuatu. He says, ah, you're talking about the magic money. And I said, what? He said, yeah, the magic money that comes out of the land. That's it, it's what you say. It's like, holy heck, that is a much better way to describe unending income and economic rent and uh, all these sort of windfall gains that uh, the West, uh, Western society seems to be hooked on by uh, this uh, omnipresent uh, reality TV uh, spooking um, property speculation. So, Spigney uh, Dumensky, can we wrap up this uh, extended Renegade Economist podcast? Uh, what sort of uh, uh, thought would you like to leave listeners as they're commuting around the world, listening to this show and, and, and hopefully uh, looking at the role of, of micronations?
1: Well, I would suggest um, that people pay more attention to small states to uh, smaller economies, smaller political entities, microstates in particular, because there are many exciting things happening in small places. And we're usually used to looking at very big economies, very big, you know, the United States, the European Union, even Greece, much bigger economy than any of the economies I look at. And yet we see that many of these big economies just mimic each other when it comes to solutions, when it comes to policies. And the really exciting stuff often happens in very small and remote corners of the globe.